Good morning, everyone. We're glad that you're able to be with us as we're continuing in a series we now started three weeks ago that we've been calling The Thrill of Hope. And uh, let me just say that if you are a guest with us this morning, if this is your first time here, uh, let me just say thank you so, so much for being here. We count it an incredible privilege that you would join us on Sunday morning. We know there's a lot of things you could be doing on Sunday morning, and so thanks for joining us as we're continuing in this series, uh, like I said, that we've been calling The Thrill of Hope. And if you are new, let me just kind of catch you up to speed because like I said, uh, this is the third week of this series. And so we've been uh, in this conversation and a couple weeks ago when we started this conversation and we begin by just looking at sort of the big idea of this entire series. And uh, and to introduce the big idea, we took a look at a uh, a verse um, in the book of Colossians in the Bible. Let me just show you that verse real quick. It's Colossians chapter two, verse 17. I'll put it up on the screen. And this is a verse that we looked at. It says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. But the reality, however, is found in Christ, right? So we started by looking at that verse. We actually looked at it in a couple different translations. And we said that some different translations say um, that these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is in Christ. The reality or the substance is in Jesus Christ. And we said the reason that this verse was written, as we kind of introduced the whole topic, we said the reason that this verse was written is because the Apostle Paul was writing to a church in a place called Colossae. And what he was referring to in this verse is he was referring back to the Old Testament rituals, celebrations, feasts, festivals, and holidays that the Jewish people would oftentimes celebrate. And so what the Apostle Paul was telling this church is he was saying, listen, those Old Testament feasts and celebrations and holidays that you celebrate, he said, those are a shadow. Uh, They are a foreshadowing, an anticipation of a greater reality. And he said that the substance or the reality of those holidays and those celebrations is in Christ. And so basically, the reason that the Apostle Paul wrote this verse was because he was trying to encourage this church to not just chase shadows, but to, to, to not chase shadows and miss the substance, right? To not simply make these holidays and these celebrations simply about these holidays and these celebrations and to miss the substance because the substance is in Jesus Christ. And what we said a couple of weeks ago as we began this series is we said that even though we live in a different time, in a different place, in a different culture, in a different circumstance, that there's a lot of parallels um, at Christmas time for us and what was happening uh, back here in the book of Colossians. And we said this, we said that during Christmas time, it's very easy for us in our culture to chase shadows, right? It, it is easy for us, I'll put it this way, it's easy for us to make Christmas about all types of other things and totally miss the substance of what it's really about, right? It's easy for us to make Christmas about the gifts or the presents or the celebrations or whatever it might be and, and completely miss out on the substance of the season, which of course is Jesus Christ. And, and we said those things, the shadows, those are good things, right? The, the, the family and the gifts and the presents, those are all good, 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 good things. But, but, but to chase those things and to miss out on the ultimate thing would be a mistake, And so we said it's very possible that you can go through the entire Christmas season chasing shadows and miss the substance. And so for that reason, we said we want to do the series. And we just want to, as kind of as a church together, we kind of want to process through Christmas in a healthy and a helpful way so that we don't miss the substance to the shadows this year. And uh, and so we've been doing that. So in the series each week then, we've been talking about how the shadows of Christmas, the things that we tend to chase, the things that we tend to put our hope in this time of year, actually find their substance in the person of Jesus Christ. So each week, we've been looking at a different topic and kind of making those connections. Now, let me just say 
that if everything that I just said as a way of introduction is either intriguing to you or it's confusing to you, that's okay. I would actually encourage you to go back uh, to the previous last couple of messages and listen to those. Um, You can either go to our website and you can uh, watch those sermons or listen to those if you want to, or you can download our app. We have an app. If you go to the app store, uh, just search for Grace Ohio, and you'll find our app, and you can download that. You can watch that or listen to that for free. And I would encourage you to do that to kind of catch up in the series. But today, as we continue in the series, and as we kind of look at this third installment, we want to talk today about the thrill of wonder. All right, that's what we're going to be kind of talking about today, is the thrill of wonder. And how um, the, the desire and the sense of wonder and awe that we oftentimes feel around Christmas time finds its substance in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I mean by that. Um, Christmas time... When we describe it, when we explain it to people, a lot of times we'll use words like this. We'll say Christmas is a magical time of year, right? It is a time of wonder and awe. It's awe-inspiring, a wonder-inducing time of year. And it's true to some extent, right? Because Christmas has a way, more than almost any other holiday that we celebrate, of capturing our imaginations as a culture, And you can hear it in the way that we talk. You can hear it in the stories that we tell that our imaginations oftentimes during Christmas time have an inclination towards these uh, wonderful, magical, even sometimes supernatural type of things. So think about it, right? Um, At Christmas time, we tell stories about a snowman who can magically talk, right? At Christmas time, uh, we talk about elves who magically appear on shelves. Uh, We talk about gifts that magically appear under trees. We talk about polar bears who magically drink Coca-Cola, right? And every year, I magically somehow gain 10 pounds. I don't know how it happens, but it seems like every year that's what takes place. And there's this inclination in our hearts for, for something supernatural, for something magic, for something outside of the realm of what's normal, something awe-inspiring and something that's Wonderful. In fact, when you look at the different cultures throughout the world, one of the things that you'll notice is the cultures that celebrate Christmas, they almost always have their own Christmas legend, something that's a supernatural, magical explanation of what's behind Christmas. And what is that? What is that? Why is it that this time of year there's this sense of awe and wonder? There's this desire to believe in something that's beyond the realm of what we see is normal? That's something that's in us this time of year. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, and my guess is probably for most of us, um, that that sense of wonder is especially heightened when, when you're a kid, right? I think back to when I was a kid at Christmas time, man, and it was, it was seriously some of my most fond memories of childhood were during Christmas. It was just magical. It was awesome, right? And, and I just remember the presents and the family and the gifts, and there was just something about it that was so cool. I think this is why for those of us who are parents of little kids um, or who are grandparents, the wonder of Christmas time can oftentimes be reawakened and revitalized because we're living vicariously through our children, right? And I know this. Right now, I, my wife and I, we have, um, we have two little boys. We have a five-year-old and we have a six-year-old. And then we have another one on the way. She's actually due in six weeks. And so got a little girl on the way. So pray for me. Pray for me. I'm going to need it. And, and, uh, and, but I'm telling you, I love, love, love watching Christmas through my kids' eyes. It's such a blast. In fact, I, I remember one of my favorite stories um, of when, when I got to experience Christmas through my kids' eyes was when my oldest son, Nehemiah, he was, um, he was about three and a half, I think. And so he was at the age where he could really start getting the whole Christmas thing. You know, the years before that, he was too young. But about three and a half, I remember we were getting out all the Christmas stuff, got the tree and we got out the lights. And I was just watching him. 
and just to watch the excitement and everything was, was new and fascinating and, and, and you could see his eyes were big and he would, you know, he would yell out and, and, just, and just be so happy about everything that was going on. And my, my favorite memory is I remember my wife and I were setting up the nativity scene in our living room, right? And so we're getting out the nativity scene. Of course, you have all the major players there, right? And, uh, and, and my son comes up and he's playing with them because that's what you do when you're a kid. And when you're an adult, honestly, and, and, and I was going through all the things. I'm like, you know, it's like, here's the wise men. And I was like, and these are the, here's the shepherds. I said, and this is jo- this is Joseph. Can you say Joe? Yeah, this is Joseph, right? I was like, and this is Mary. I was like, and do you know who the baby is? You know who the baby is? And he goes, Joseph. I said, no, no, no. I said, the baby, that's Joseph. The baby's Jesus, right? This is, this is baby Jesus. I said, the reason we celebrate Christmas, buddy, is because it's Jesus's birthday, right? The lights and the tree, it's all because it's Jesus's birthday, and I think he got it because later that day, I remember we went to my parents' house and my parents had just put up their Christmas lights uh, for the season. And, and so my, my son, he saw the Christmas lights at his grandma and grandpa's house and he got so excited that he ran out of the car and he ran up to the lights and he goes, wow. And he goes, happy birthday, Joe Foff. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know who Joe Foff is, but apparently it's like a mixture of Joseph and David Hasselhoff, I don't really know, you know, but uh, so to this day, my parents still call him the happy birthday Joffoff lights, but there, there's just, there's something about it, isn't there? There's something about the, just watching Christmas through our kids' eyes, the wonder and the awe of it uh, just seems to be there, and, and, and then something kind of weird happens, though. We get older, right, and as we get older, it seems like uh, that sense of awe and wonder starts to sort of dwindle away, and I don't know if it's just because reality starts to set in or if it's, uh, if it's because the circumstance of life begin to harden us a little bit, uh, but the desire and the awe and the wonder and the sense of belief in things that are supernatural begins to drift. In fact, for some of you, uh, my guess is that Christmas is not a wonderful time. Uh, for some of you, if you are honest, maybe Christmas is a really hard time because it reminds you of a loved one that you had in your life. And, and Christmas at one time was special and it was wonderful, but now that person is gone and so Christmas just reminds you of what you once had that you no longer have. Or maybe for, for some of you, you had a family, and, and at one point in time, there was a certain structure, and that family has since been broken. And, and now Christmas reminds you of the hurt and the pain and the wonder and the awe and the magic of Christmas is gone, right? And, and, and what is this to say then about this sense of, of wonder, this sense of awe that we tend to experience this time of year? What is there to say about that? Is this an illusion? that we're dealing with? Are we simply dealing with a fairy tale? Um, is this just a childhood fantasy? Or could, or could it be that the desire that we have, the sense of awe and wonder, the desire to believe in something that is supernatural, could it be that that desire inside of our hearts finds its substance in the person of Jesus Christ? So today I want to talk about that. And I want to encourage you, if you've got your Bibles, to take them with me. We're going to go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So grab your Bibles with me, if you will, and let's turn there to Luke 2. This is, of course, the Christmas story, right? Luke chapter 2. So go ahead and flip there if you would. Um, If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that shouldn't be a problem at all. We actually have some for you, I think, in the chairs in front of you. And uh, in those Bibles, you can turn to page 715 is where you're going to find Luke chapter 2. Or if you want to, you can also access um, the Bible through our app. Again, if you go to Grace Ohio at the App Store, download that. Click on the Medina East Campus, and the verses will be there for you as well. So Luke chapter 2, however you want to get there, go ahead and get there. And again, we're going to be looking at, this is pretty much the famous Christmas story, right? 
Uh, This is sort of the one. So Luke chapter 2. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in verse 1. And we're going to read all the way down to verse 20. And I'm going to start just by reading the whole thing. All right? So let's read the Christmas story together. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in the manger because there was no room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to, whom, uh, to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, this is it, right, man? This is the Christmas story. Uh, This is the famous Christmas story. This is the one Linus reads, remember, in the Charlie Brown Christmas. This is the one we're probably familiar with. And, um, And, you know, at first glance, when you look at this, this story has all of the components to be among all of the other fairy tales and legends that we tell each other during Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, it has all these supernatural things in it. Uh, you have angels appearing to shepherds. Um, you have the heavens opening up and a myriad of angels shouting out, glory to God in the highest. Um, you have in this passage a virgin birth. Uh, you have the incarnation, God becoming man. And, and you have all of these supernatural fantastical things that quite honestly, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, for some of you, these might be the stumbling blocks that you have with the Christian faith. I don't know if I can accept things like this. This looks like a fairy tale. This looks like a legend. And at first glance, it can seem to us that the Christmas story that we have in front of us simply looks like another legend or another fairy tale that we tell each other amongst all the other fairy tales and legends that we tell each other during Christmas. But today, my hope is that I want you to go beyond first glance. Because when we look deeper into this story, I think you'll come to see that there are certain elements that are contained within this Christmas story that show us that we are not dealing with another legend or a fairy tale, but we are dealing with substance. We are dealing with something substantial, all right? So with the rest of the time that we have, I want to talk just through three elements, three elements that this story contains that shows us that we are not simply dealing with a legend or a fairy tale, but we are dealing with something substantial, Christ 
being born, the substance, all right? So let's just go through them together. Here's the first one, all right? Three elements in the story. The first element that you may notice when you read this story is something that I call the historical element, all right? In the Christmas story, when you read it, one of the things that's immediately striking is the attention to historical detail um, that we see. So just, if you would, glance with me back, go back a page, and look again at verse 1 down to 4 of how Luke starts this passage. Here's how Luke starts the, the birth of Jesus, the Christmas story. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. Now, now when you read this, and you actually look into it and think about it a little bit, one of the things that hits you is that Luke begins this story by introducing a series of historical characters, a series of historical events, and a series of geographical locations. In this time, Caesar Augustus um, issued a royal edict to take a census of the Roman world. By the way, Quirinius was the governor in Syria at this time. And he talks about a census, not the second census. This is the first census. He's referring to historical people, historical events. He begins talking about geography. They were in Nazareth, up in Galilee. They went down through Judea, down to Bethlehem, the town of David. He's referring to all of these things. They go, now, I'm just saying, at first glance, just at, just at first glance when you look at this, and you look at the historical element that, that Luke introduces, you come to realize this reads way different than any other legend or fairy tale that we tend to tell each other during Christmas time, right? Now think about this for a minute. Think about the, the stories and the movies that we watch during Christmas, the fairy tales. How do they tend to start? I'll just give you a couple examples. So um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right, 1964 version. Uh, many of us are familiar with that, the claymation version that's on TV. You guys remember how that starts? It starts with a narration by a talking snowman. And, uh, and this is it. His name is Sam, right? I'll put it up here for you. Here's what Sam says. If I live to be 100, I'll never be able to forget that big snowstorm a couple years ago. The weather closed in, and well, you might not believe it, but the world almost missed Christmas. And he goes on. Oh, excuse me. Call me Sam. What's the matter? Haven't you ever seen a talking snowman before? Nice around here, isn't it? I call it Christmas Town, better known as the North Pole, the Christmas tree forest, right? And that's how Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer starts, right? It begins with these imaginary people and these imaginary places doing these imaginary things, right? And, and like Sam the talking snow. Oh, I'm Sam the talking snowman. Do we know anything about Sam the talking snowman? Can we go back to any ge genealogical records of the origins of Sam? No, no, why, why not? Because it's fiction, right? It's fun. It's just, it's for fun, right? What about uh, Christmas Town? Is there any time you can go back in history and look at the North Pole and say, oh, there's Christmas Town. It's right by the Christmas tree forest, right? See, on a map. Can't do that, right? right? Because it's fiction. We know it's just for fun. It's for fun. And, and, and fairy tales and legends tend to start that way, right? Or think about this, the movie Elf, right? Will Ferrell, great movie. Uh, you guys remember Elf when uh, Buddy the Elf is asked by his family, how did you get to New York? You remember what he says? This is what he says. I passed through the seven levels of the candy cane forest, right? Through the sea of the swirly, twirly gumdrops. And then I walk through the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> and it's, a, it's an awesome movie. It's a great movie. But, but, man, can you go to a map and see the swirly, twirly gumdrop sea? 
the seven levels of the kingdom. Yeah, can, you, can you find that? No, it's why? Because it's fiction, man. It's fiction, and we know that, and it's fun, right? It's just all for fun. But you think about it, legends and stories, whenever they begin, they always start in a very nebulous way, don't they? Uh, it's always fairy tales. Once upon a time. When? Once. Right? When? Uh, upon a time. I don't know. It doesn't matter, right? Or think about Star Wars. Um, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? When was it? Long time ago. How long? Long. In a far-off galaxy. How far? Far, okay? It doesn't really matter. And, and all these stories begin, they're not, they have no bearing on time and space. They're nebulous. They're free-floating, and they're not attached to anything, right? But when Luke begins the story of Jesus, notice he starts making all these attachments. You notice this? All these geographical, historical, um, uh, like uh, these events, historical events. He's making these attachments, and he doesn't just give a few. He gives a bunch. And these times, Caesar Augustus issued a decree to take a census. This was the first census, he says, not to be confused with the second census. He says this, and if you're confused about that, this is when Quirinius uh, was the governor in Syria, right? He talks about these times and these places and the events. He attaches them to history. Now, why is he, why is he doing that? Here's why he's doing that. Luke is doing that because he's trying to tell us that we're not dealing with a shadow here. We're dealing with something substantial. This has substance to it. In fact, we actually, I don't know if you know this, but we actually know why the Gospel of Luke was written. Um, He tells us in chapter 1, the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, he was a doctor, he tells us why he wrote this. If you just uh, go back one page to Luke chapter 1, check out verse 1. Here's what Luke says. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses of the servants of the word. With this in mind, listen to what he says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. You see what Luke says? He said, look, the reason I'm writing this to you is because I've been doing some fact-finding. And I've went out and I've interviewed the eyewitnesses. And I've done my historical research. And I've done my background on this stuff. And I've compiled together. And I want to give you my findings. And I'm writing it to you, a guy named Theophilus, right? And some of you may or may not know this. Luke is a doctor. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. It's estimated, scholars say, in about the early 60s A.D., That would have been about 30 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is not enough time to elapse to begin a legend. Uh, Because to have a legend, right, there's eyewitnesses that were still uh, around during this time. And so he writes this. And I'll just tell you, in my own studies, what I found, and, and this is just based on my own studies. I'm sure that I may have missed a few. But in my own studies, I found that through the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which, like I said, those two were written together by Luke, there are 23 references to historically verifiable figures. And when I say historically verifiable, what I mean is uh, people who can be validated by extra-biblical resources, things like first-century historians like Eusebius and like Josephus, things like archaeological evidences and digs that we have found certain things, historically validating what Luke has said about these things. Guys like Caesar Augustus who we know was a real historical figure who had a serious impact on, um, on, on, all, and on the whole world. In fact, the reason, you guys might not know this, but the reason that we have the month of August, or at least the reason that we call it August, is because of Caesar Augustus, right? Guys like Quirinius, 
all of these things, these dates and these facts that align, 23 historical figures that we see throughout Luke and Acts. One of the things when you read the Gospels and you read them carefully that might stick out at you, and one of the things you'll notice is that the Gospel writers are always giving us these strange little details that seem irrelevant to to anything. They just kind of insert them in. So one example would be um, in Mark 15, for example, the gospel uh, of Mark tells us that Jesus was going to the cross. And as he was going to the cross, they pulled someone out of the audience, out of the, out of the crowd to help Jesus carry his cross. But Mark doesn't just say, yeah, they picked some guy to help Jesus carry the cross. He says, yeah, it was Simon from Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. Why, why would he say that? Because as modern readers were like, Okay, I, I guess the guy's name was Simon. I guess he was the dad of Rufus and Alexander. I don't know. Why would he do that? Here, here's why he would do that. Because the gospel of Mark was written 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Mark was basically saying is this. He's saying, listen, if you don't believe me, go ask them. You can go talk to Simon. Go to Cyrene and ask for Simon. And if he's gone, ask for his sons. Go ask Alexander and Rufus. Go ask Alex and Rufi. You know, I don't know how to abbreviate Rufus, apparently. But, but, you know, go ask them. And you see, the Gospels have these little details. And why is that? Because it's showing us there's a historical element. We are dealing with something substantial. C.S. Lewis, um, I quote from him quite a bit. But he, was a, he actually was a literary professor at Oxford uh, and, and, and a high, high-level scholar. And, you know, he was an atheist and he became a Christian. And a big part of him becoming a Christian was reading the Gospels. And here's what he said. I just want to quote from him. I think this is awesome. This is coming from a literary expert. He said this. He said, now as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else, the gospels are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly, right? So that might sound like he's criticizing the gospels, but he's making a point here. Look what he says. The art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art, not until a hundred years ago or so when the realistic novel came into existence. Surely the only explanation is that the thing really happened. The author put it in simply because he had seen it. See, what what C.S. Lewis is saying is saying, look, I'm a a literary scholar. And I'm telling you that in Jesus' time, people didn't write stuff like this. This reads different. There's a historical element to it. And so when we look at this story, one of the ways that we know we're dealing with substance is because there's a historical evidence. There's a historical element that coincides with it. Here's a second one, because it's not just the historical. There's others too. Here's the second element. The second element, and you have to look a little bit more deeply in the passage for this one, but it's something that I call the prophetic element. There is a prophetic element to the story of Christ's birth. You know, one of the things that, um, that can happen when we read a story like this, especially if you kind of grew up in church, this is a familiar story, right? Um, one of the things that can happen is you can read right past little details and completely miss the profound implication of what that detail means. One of the details this passage tells us at the very beginning is it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree to take a census because he wanted to take a census of the entire Roman world. Now, that is a small little tiny detail that to many of us we read right past and we think, okay. But I'm telling you, the the implications of that little detail are so unbelievably important. And here's why. When the Bible tells us that Caesar Augustus passed an edict to take a census of the entire Roman world, many of you might remember the only reason that was possible 
was because of something that Caesar Augustus ushered in. If you remember back in history, um, Caesar Augustus was a very, very powerful leader. And one of the things that he was most known for was ushering in something that was called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana basically meant Roman peace. It was a period of about 200 years. It started in the, in the 20 BCs, and it lasted for 200 years. It was an era of peace in the Roman government, and it united the entire ancient world in a way that they'd never seen before. And so the whole world, the whole ancient world at this point, was underneath Roman rule, Roman authority, and Roman taxation. Now, the reason that's important is because what that means is, for the very first time, Israel, the nation of Israel, was underneath Roman authority and Roman taxation. They had never been under that before. And so what that means is that when Caesar Augustus said, you know what, I want to issue a decree to take a census, which, by the way, they would have done that for tax purposes. When he said, I want to issue a census, that meant that Israel, the nation of Israel, was now required to participate in that census. They would have never been required to do that before, right? And we know through history and through the Bible that when Israel took the census, what it meant for the Israelite people is that they had to go back to their hometown. They had to go back to the place that their family was from. And so David, the Bible tells us, was from Bethlehem. He was from the line of David. I mean, uh, Joseph was from the line of David in Bethlehem. And so the Bible tells us that the reason that Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem, the reason they're there, is because Caesar Augustus had passed this edict and they were underneath Roman rule and they had to go to Bethlehem. Now, think about this for a minute. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. Nazareth is about 70 to 75 miles north of Bethlehem. That's where they're from. That's where they raised Jesus. That's why we call him Jesus of Nazareth because he was raised in Nazareth, right? Now, just think about this for a minute. In order for them to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, and the route that they took, according to what the Bible takes, would have been about an 85-mile route. They didn't have cars. They didn't have minivans. They didn't have trains or any of that kind of stuff. So the way that they would get down there was either by animal or by walking. And so imagine 85 miles. You're talking probably about at least a few days trip, maybe three days, maybe four days, maybe more. She was pregnant. So probably, let's be honest, probably five days with all the bathroom breaks and everything, right? So they get down there finally. Now, now let, me just, let me just say, just think about this for a minute. When she's down there, she is full term, man. She is in her third trimester. She is ready to have the baby. Now, let me just tell you from experience. Right? I got a pregnant wife right now. And in and, uh, and six weeks, I told you uh, we're going to, the little princess is coming. The invasion is happening. Our, it's all going down in six weeks, or at least that's the due date. It could be earlier than that. And let me just tell you that having a pregnant wife, and this is the third time, one of the things that I have learned about having a pregnant wife is the importance of being home, being near home, being close to home, having our doctor at our hospital. Right now, I see it. The maternal instinct is coming out, man. And my wife is nesting and everything is in its place. The, the crib is there. The pictures are on the wall. We have the nap nanny. We have the boppy. We have all the other things that sound like I'm speaking a different language if you don't have kids, right? Got all that stuff ready. And if I went to my wife and I said, hey, babe, you know, maybe in five weeks we should go on a vacation. Let's get out of town for a little while. You know, let's go somewhere out of town. I would not be standing in front of you today. <laughs> she would kill me if I said that, right? And listen, Mary is full term. What would cause them to leave the comforts of their own home in Nazareth to take this trip to a town where apparently they didn't even know anyone because they had to try to find an inn, right? What would make them do that? Well, there's only a couple things that would make you do that. And one of them would probably be a royal edict from Caesar Augustus who said you have to come down and pay your taxes. And, and so listen, listen to me. 
It might have felt like an inconvenience for Mary and Joseph to go down to Bethlehem. It probably felt less than ideal. But God knew that they had to be there. Why did they have to be there? Why was it so important that Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem? Here's why. Because 700 years before this happened, this story happened, the book of Micah tells us that there was a prophecy that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Let me show it to you. Micah 5.2 says this, this was 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, 300 years after King David was on the scene. says this, but you, Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you are going to come from me, one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And Micah's going to go on in the same passage, and he's going to say that that Messiah, the one who's going to come to save the, the world from his sins, is going to hail from Bethlehem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Let me just tell you that, like I said, this may have seemed like an inconvenience for Mary and Joseph. It might have seemed less than ideal. From a humanistic standpoint, it probably made no sense to them. But look, from a divine standpoint, you see the sovereign hand of God moving governments, shifting authorities, paving the way for everything to line up with his divine plan. The plan that he set out 700 years prior to this. And all of those things culminating in the birth of Jesus Christ, his boy, the Messiah. And listen, from a humanistic standpoint, sometimes things don't make sense. Sometimes things seem inconvenient to us. But listen, from a divine standpoint, God is sovereignly working out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We have a perfect example of that right here in front of us. And this prophecy, Luke is trying to show us there wasn't just a historical element. There's also a prophetic element, and it's not just this one prophecy. I wish we had time to get into it. When you read the account of Jesus' birth, of his life, of his death and his resurrection, get this, over 300 Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 300. These are all hundreds of years before Jesus. When you look at the statistical probability of these things just being a mere coincidence, it's unfathomable. Unfathomable. And so, so what's Luke doing? He's telling us there's a historical element. We're dealing with something that's substance. But he also says, but look, there's a prophetic element. We're dealing with something that's not just a shadow. There's something substantial to this story. And this story is loaded with evidences to help us verify that we're dealing with something real. So there's a historical element. There's a prophetic element. And then there's a third one. And this one is going to sound probably the most strange of them all. And so let me try my best to explain what I mean. I call this the internal element. There's an internal element. Um, One of the things I love the most about the Christmas story, personally, I've always loved this, is that when, when God decides to send his son onto this earth, He decides to send the Messiah, the long awaited Messiah. The Bible tells us that the birth announcement goes to the shepherds. That he decides to give the announcement of the Messiah coming in this world, not to the noblemen, not to the kings, but to these shepherds who are in a field nearby. And the reason I love that so much is because some of you, if you've been with us for a while, you might, we've actually talked about the shepherds in the past. You might remember a little bit about the shepherds. You don't want to romanticize a shepherd, not back in this time. Uh, Shepherds were considered some of the lowest class citizens back in this period. Uh, First off, um, they were low on the economic ladder. They did not have a very reputable job. Most people didn't aspire to be shepherds. That wasn't something that you would do, right? And not only that, but back in this time, they were also religiously ostracized by the religious community. 
Um, and because of the Jewish regulations, uh, a shepherd was considered ceremonially unclean. So they weren't even allowed to step foot in a synagogue. They weren't allowed to step foot in the temple. They weren't allowed to. And many religious people would ostracize them. They would keep an arm's length because they would be afraid to get ceremonially unclean themselves by interacting with the shepherds. And so they were low economically. They were low religiously. They were ostracized. And on top of that, they were socially marginalized. These guys were weird, right? They lived out in fields with sheep. You get weird after a while if you're doing something like that. And so many people didn't trust their kids with shepherds. You would keep your children away from them. You would keep your goods away from them because they were known to be thieves, And so you're talking about a very low-class citizen, a very low-class person when you're talking about the shepherds. And yet, and yet, and yet, when God decides that he's going to send the Messiah to this earth and he's going to announce the birth of his baby boy, the gift to all humanity, the hope, the Bible says the announcement is given not to the kings, not to the royalty, not to the noblemen, but it's given to the shepherds. And, and the angels show up and they say, we have great joy for you. Good news for you. Don't be afraid. I mean, what a profound statement about this gift in Christmas that Jesus Christ is not simply for the religiously put together. Jesus Christ isn't just for those who, are, who, who have it all together. It's for the broken. It's for, for those of us who are marginalized and outcast. It's for everyone. That's what the birth announcement is telling us, that Jesus Christ is a gift for all. And the thing I love the most about the shepherds, the Bible tells us in this passage, is that when they heard this announcement, they were full of awe. And the Bible says they ran down to Bethlehem to see the baby. And they got there and they saw the baby. And the Bible says they couldn't contain themselves. And they went out and they told everyone around them about what had happened. And the Bible gives us this little detail. And it says this. It says that the shepherds and everyone who heard were amazed. And I love that because if you take that word and you pull it back in the original language, the word amazed literally means they were struck with awe and wonder. And think about it. These shepherds, who my guess is, man, they've probably been disillusioned by life up to this point. They've probably been let down so many times, beat down by life so many times that all sense of awe, wonder, and belief that they ever had within them was probably completely zapped out of them. And the Bible says now they were full of awe. And after they saw Christ, they went back glorifying God and rejoicing. And then this special verse, man. What an awesome little verse this is. Just, if you look down at verse 19, I love this. Look what it says about Mary. But Mary treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. Isn't that an awesome verse? Isn't that awesome? That in the middle of all of this, the Bible says Mary, Mary took a minute and she treasured these things up in her heart and she pondered them. In fact, you know, that's a really hard word to translate in the Greek. It's a unique word. It literally means to be perplexed, but not in a bad way, in a really good way. It basically means this, to be so full of awe and wonder. It's almost like Mary didn't have enough bandwidth to, 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 to somehow take in the magnitude of the miracle that she had just experienced. And so she's like, I'm just going to take a snapshot of the situation because, man, this is so, something amazing just happened. And I got to, like, take it in me. And I have no bandwidth to even process this. And she pondered it in her heart. She was full of awe and wonder. Something supernatural had just happened, man. And, and listen, when I read this story, you see that everyone's response to the Messiah is that they're full of wonder and they're full of awe and they're full of amazements. Listen, I think that the same wonder and awe, the same amazement that, that Mary and Joseph felt, the same amazement that the shepherds felt is honestly the same thing that happens in our hearts when we hear this story too. Isn't it true? There's something about this story. 
It stirs the heart of humanity. There's something inside of us that, that, in, that it's an internal thing. I can't explain it any better than that. There's an internal thing inside of us that says, man, there's something about this that stirs me. It moves me. It causes awe and wonder in my own heart. And I call that the internal element. Because you see, our culture, we dig the historical thing. Historical evidences, they're verifiable. Um, you can go back and prove them factually. Prophetic elements are proven through chronology. Uh, you can go back and figure those things out. And we like that because they're tangible, they're rational. But I believe that this is another element and I think that this is another evidence and it's one that our, that our culture often scoffs at, but I think it's equally as viable and it's the internal element that there's something in our hearts that was created for this story. That might sound abstract, so let me try to put it another way, all right? Um, I am convinced, convinced, that there are certain plot lines that are hardwired into our hearts. Um, I don't know how to say it any better than that, but I am convinced there are certain plot lines that across all cultures, across all time, across all ages, for some reason, there are certain stories that move our hearts in a really unique way. I'll just give you an example. Um, the plot line of good triumphing over evil. That plot line is interwoven. It is hardwired into us. I see it in my kids. I don't even have to tell them. I see it inside of them. This is why the movies that we watch and the plays that we get into and the novels that we read, anyone that's worth its salt has this plot line. Good overcoming evil. Think about it. Star Wars, right? Good overcoming evil. Lord of the Rings. Good overcoming evil. Taken, right? Liam Neeson overcoming evil. Um, Taken 2. Taken 3, right? Pretty much any movie with Liam Neeson, right? It's good overcoming evil. The Lego movie for crying out loud, right? I mean, you see this plot line and there's something about that plot line when we see it that it makes us rise up in our chairs. It's something stamped inside of our humanity that tells us that that's the way things should be, right? Or how about this one? The plot line of a humble leader who gives of themselves sacrificially for the sake of the freedom of others. Man, there's something about that plot line that causes us to move. We are moved by that. Think about it. Braveheart, right? William Wallace, at the end, giving his life, sacrificing himself for the freedom of his fellow countrymen. And instead of relinquishing in the face of suffering, instead cries out, freedom! And we all tear up when we see it. Why? Because the self-sacrifice of this man giving his life for the sake of others? There's something stamped inside of us that says, man, there's something about that. Think about it, um, uh, Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List, right? A man who gives of all of his wealth and all of his possessions so that he might save the lives of others. And then at the end of the movie is crying out because he wishes he could have done more to save more. And we cry with him when we see it because we say, yeah, man, there's something about that plot line that is in our, hardwired into our hearts. Big Hero 6, right? Baymax at the end, right? Blows his fist off and gives his life in sacrifice for the sake. There's something about that. I watch my boys watching this movie and they're moved. What is that? How about this one? True love. Love that overcomes all obstacles so that the two people might be reconvened, even overcoming death itself. That's Romeo and Juliet, man, right? Love even beyond death. This is the plot line of every chick flick, right? The chick flicks that, that we watch, and I make fun of my wife because she likes them, and I sit there and quietly get chills, and I don't, ad- and I don't admit it, right? 
Why is that? Because there's something hardwired in our heart for it. The true love that we see. How about this one? Cheating death. Resurrection. The curse being reversed and all things being restored. How about that? You see that everywhere, man. That's frozen, right? That's why every little girl is captivated by that storyline because death is defeated and true love wins and there's happily ever after, right? And there's Olaf, so that, that helps too. And, and all that takes place. Why is it that when we see videos about people who were born deaf and that disability is reversed and they get their hearing, it moves us. Why is it that when we see stories of adoption, there's something in us that cries out, that's the way it ought to be. Why is it that when we see stories about people cheating death, we say, you know, it seems like that's not what reality is like, but it ought to be that way. It ought to be that way. Why is that? Well, here's what I believe. I believe there's an, an internal evidence that God has set, set a story in our hearts. And listen, the Christmas story is not just another story among those stories. I believe that the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the story that all of those other stories are pointing to. The reason we're so compelled by those things is because they're all real. They all find substance in the gospel. Think about it for a minute. The gospel tells us good triumphs over evil. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, right? Think about it, man. Um, uh, true love, overcoming all odds. Jesus Christ coming, dying on the cross to destroy the hostility between God and man, to reconcile God and sinner. It's a story, man. How about this? A, 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 a humble leader giving of himself for the sake of the freedom of others. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Someone who emptied himself of all of his riches so that we might, be, made himself poor, that we might become rich. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the sins of humanity that we might be reconciled to God. Resurrection. We long for it because we're created for it. That death does not have the final say. Death does not have the final say. And the Bible tells us, what scripture tells us, is that all of these things find their substance in this story, in the story of Christ. And so what does this mean? Well, here's what it means, quite frankly. It means that we're not dealing with a fairy tale. It means that we're not dealing with a legend. It means we're dealing with substance. It means that Jesus Christ is the joy that every heart desires, even, even if you don't know it. The plot line of the gospel is in your heart. And it was put there by God because this is what you were created for. And for some of you, listen, if you've never embraced Christ, man, maybe, maybe today you, things aren't making, you're making connections that you've never made before and you're going, yeah, man, this is real. The historical evidence, yeah, it's verifiable. You can look into it. Some of you, you need to do that. Don't just take what I said and take it uh, for, just go, go back and study it. Look at the historical references, the prophetic references. Look at them, study them. Yes, yes, yes. But don't ignore the internal thing because there's something in our hearts that points to the fact that this is real and this is true, that Christ has come, that he is the substance. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. And uh, man, I'm so thankful that we are not just dealing with some abstract fairy tale some nebulous legend that's not rooted or connected to reality. But it is true, the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come among us. And Father, in the story of the gospel, in the message of what Christ has done for us, we find the substance of what our heart longs for. So God, I pray that you would, in our hearts, build faith. Give us faith, Lord. 
I pray that you would increase our belief in these things that you have done for us because God, the Christmas story is not just another story that we tell at Christmas. It's the story that all stories point to. And so because of that, Father, I pray that you would help us to internalize it. And God, for the person in this room who's never embraced you, I pray that maybe for the first time they would internalize you because, because the fact that this is substance means that it's for us. That this gift of Jesus Christ is for every person. No matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter how marginalized or ostracized we may feel, the fact that you came to us reveals to us that this gift is for us. So Lord, I pray that we'd receive it, that we'd embrace it. Help us to press our minds and our hearts down on it, to not miss the substance in the midst of the shadows. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for the good thing that you've done for us. I pray that you would instill faith in our hearts as we go from this place. We pray in Christ's name, amen.